Well, good morning. Before I begin today, I wanted to make a few comments about what's been going on in our country, in our nation right now. The events surrounding the death of George Floyd, I think for all of us have been disturbing. I think we've been disgusted by the images we've seen and saddened by what's taken place. But these events and a lot of the more publicized events are events taking place some distance away from Morgantown, West Virginia. They're happening in Minneapolis and New York City and places like that. And they're happening in big cities and not, not small cities like Morgantown. And so I think there could be a temptation to think that this is not my problem, that this is not something we have to face, and yet I'm convinced it is. It's something that we as a nation need to confront. This past week, I was driving to my cabin to do some work on the message, and as I was driving along, I was praying and I was thinking about where things were as a nation. And I began to think of some of the brothers and sisters of color who are part of our church family. I saw some of your faces and the thought occurred to me, what would I do if it was one of you? And when I had this image in my mind of something like this happening to one of you, I just, as I was driving, I actually broke down crying. I was hoping that I wouldn't be pulled over. I just couldn't imagine that, someone I care about, someone I loved facing something like this. And I realized that there are some changes that need to take place in our country today. At Chester Ridge Church, we wanted to take some steps to begin to address the problem, and we recognize that, again, it's just the beginning point. But we would like to have an event that we're gonna call Listen and Learn. It's not gonna be a big event, uh, but we're going to be calling some of you in our church family who are brothers and sisters of color from the African-American community. We're gonna invite you to meet with some of the staff and with me and others, and we just wanna talk with you. We wanna know what racism has meant for you personally. What has it been like for you? We wanna know how you view the world in which we live today, our country and, and the region in which we live. How, how do you feel things are and your perspective on that? And then we also wanna get from you some of the ideas that you might have as we consider the future. And so I wanna ask you that if, if you receive a call like that, and we're gonna keep the size of it fairly small, but if you receive a call like that, uh, I'd like to ask you to consider please joining us because we really do want to listen and learn. Let me mention one last thing, though, before I get into the talk this morning. As I was driving to the cabin, something else came to my mind. I saw the faces of some of you in our congregation who are police officers, and you're ones I care about as well, and you're ones who are gentle, and I think you'll do the right thing, and yet you're in a a world right now where you're being lumped in with some officers that don't do what's right, and I'm, I'm sorry about that. I want you to understand that I'm praying for you, and I've committed to doing that, to pray for you and pray for your safety. Uh, these are very difficult times. I think the job was hard enough as it was. Uh, before we jump into the message, why don't we take a minute, though, and pray? Uh, Heavenly Father, we, just, uh, we are grieved as we think about where our nation is. And we recognize that so many things are taking place that are not good. So many things that are taking place that don't glorify you or honor you. Uh, this is a time, Lord, we're just asking for peace. We're asking for wisdom. We're asking for grace. We pray, Lord, that you'd raise up leaders that would steer things in the right direction. 
We ask you, Lord, as a church, that you help us to be part of the answer, Lord. We've been called to be the light of the world, and that's what we want to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first car that I ever bought was a small yellow Ford Maverick. Here's a picture of basically what the car looked like. Uh, I have to admit I was embarrassed to drive the car because it just, I just didn't feel very manly in it, mostly because of its color, because it's, it was a yellow car. Now, this wasn't the actual car itself. I got this image online. My car did not have nice rims. Before settling on this car, though, my dad and I went to a number of different houses and we looked at a variety of different cars. And one of the cars I looked at that I was really interested in was this little sporty Fiat convertible. Let me show you a picture of basically what this car looked like. The moment I saw this car, I thought, this is the car I want. I really wanted this car to work out. Uh, the owner allowed us to take it for a, a drive, and so I got in the driver's seat, and my dad got in the passenger's seat, and, and I tried to start the car, but without success. We were there for two or three minutes. I just could not get the car to start. The owner said, well, it's, it needs to be warmed up first, which I thought, yeah, if that's the case, why didn't you do that before we arrived? Eventually, it though, did start, and so I, I pulled out of the driveway and I stopped at the edge of the road like you're supposed to do to look both directions, and the moment I put on the brakes, the car died. It stalled. But it started up again, and so I drove down to the end of the street. I literally got one block. I got to the stop sign when the car literally stopped. And this time, I had trouble getting it started again. In fact, in the process of getting it started, I flooded the car, which I don't know if you can do that today, but when you get too much gas in the carburetor, I flooded the car. We were sitting there for a couple minutes. I was praying no one would come behind me. Eventually, the car started up again. We drove another block or two. It stalled once or twice more, and my dad finally looked at me and said, you know, we should probably drive this back to the owner's house before we get stuck here. And I agreed with him, so I went around the block, and I began to head back to the house. When we came to stop signs, I have to admit I didn't stop completely because I was afraid I'd stall the car, kind of drifted through. Finally got to the house and I turned into the driveway and the moment I turned into the driveway, the car stalled again. I had just enough momentum though to coast off of the road and I put the car in park. Now you would think after all of this that I would not be interested in this car, but I I still was interested in buying this car. We explained to the owner what had happened. It had stalled several times. He insisted, I'm sure there's nothing wrong with it. We told him that we'd get back in touch with him and we jumped in our car and drove away. It didn't take long though for my dad to speak up. My dad had been raised on a farm. He knew how to fix things. He knew how to fix motors. <clears throat> he was very smart about these kinds of things. And he looked at me and he said, Tim, you don't want to buy that car. He said, we don't know what's exactly wrong with it, but it could be very serious. You really do not want to buy that car. And on this particular occasion, I actually listened to my father. And so I ended up instead with an ugly yellow Maverick, Ford Maverick car that I, I drove for some time. And then when it was time to sell it, I literally sold it for the same price I paid for it. It had been a wise purchase. And when I think about this incident, the thought occurs to me how close I came to buying a lemon. 
How close? If my dad had not been in the car with me, I likely would have bought the car and for all the wrong reasons. Why would I buy a car like that? Well, it's because I was much more interested in the way the car looked or how I would look in the car. I was not as interested in whether or not it worked or not. And I think we would all agree that if you are buying a car, the most important thing is that it actually works. If the car doesn't drive, if the car doesn't work, then it doesn't matter what the thing looks like. And I almost made a big mistake. Today we're going to continue our series, YOLO, You Only Live Once. It's a series based on the Old Testament book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs was a, a book of wisdom sayings compiled by a man named Solomon, who I believe was the wisest man who ever lived apart from Jesus. He didn't write all of these Proverbs, but I think he compiled them, and he, he, he wrote them down like a father would giving advice to a son. And so that's kind of how the book is written, and there's a lot of wisdom in this book. Today, what I'd like for us to understand is that we were created in the image of God and we were created to have a relationship with God. That's why we exist. And if we do not get that part of it right, if we do not get God in his proper place, then none of it will be right. My takeaway this morning is this. When God is in his proper place, everything else falls into place. When God is in his proper place, everything else falls into place. And this takeaway is based on Proverbs 1-7, and most uh, Bible scholars agree that Proverbs 1-7 is the actual theme book, or theme verse of the entire book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 1-7, we read these words, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, fools despise wisdom and discipline. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now, some of you hearing this verse may be disturbed a little bit by it because the, the verse looks like it's saying that we're supposed to be afraid of God or we're supposed to cower before God. And I recognize that some of you came from religious backgrounds where your view of God was that he was always mad at you. He was always looking for something that you did wrong, that our God is a God that we're to be afraid of. And then we read a verse like this from Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we think, well, I don't think I should be afraid of God. Well, that is not what the phrase means. God does not want us to be ones who are cowering before him. If that's our view of God, we're missing out on what it's all about. Our God is a God to whom we, to, we are to run to, not a God we run away from. But what does it mean? Well, I'm gonna give you some definitions here in a minute. But let's look at a few verses where this same phrase is used, and let's see if we can't find some hints as to what the expression means. In Proverbs 9 and verse 10, we find a verse that's very similar to Proverbs 1 and verse 7. Let me read it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, one thing I'd like for us to understand about Jewish literature, especially Jewish poetry, is that oftentimes the way it was structured is that one sentence would be made and then it would be followed by a second sentence that basically said the same thing, only in a slightly different way. Many times that second sentence would amplify things just a little bit. And this is the case, I think, with Proverbs 9 and verse 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom 
and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Those two statements mean the same thing. The fear of the Lord is wisdom, means the same thing as the knowledge of the Holy One, or put it more simply, knowing God. Knowing God is the starting point for understanding. Now, although this is a verse that might be offensive to some, both in the Old and New Testaments, we read a a verse that says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The starting point for understanding life itself is that we were created by a creator who wanted a relationship with us. And if that part is not right, we're gonna be missing out. It's all about knowing God. Let's look at some other verses. Proverbs 14, 26 and 27. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning people away from the snares of death. If I could summarize this verse, I think it's saying that the fear of the Lord is learning to trust God so that you are secure. Our God is a refuge to whom we can continually run. And when we listen to our God, we're protected from the things that lead to death. But ultimately, it's about a love relationship that leads to good and not to bad. Let's look at another verse, Proverbs 19 and verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life. One will sleep at night without danger. Now, oftentimes, I think when people think of losing sleep, part of the reason that we lose sleep is because of fear. We're afraid of this or we're afraid of that. And then I read a verse like this. It says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. One will sleep at night without danger. Why? Again, I think it comes down to trust. It's about having a close and trusting relationship with our creator so that we don't have to fear danger, so that we don't have to fear anything at all because if we are right with our God, things are right. And Proverbs 16 and verse six, one turns from evil by the fear of the Lord. Now, I used to define the fear of the Lord in this way and I think it's still a good definition, but walking in the fear of the Lord is walking as if God is. It's walking in the reality God is. And sometimes this is the thing that keeps us from doing certain things that that are contrary to what's taught in the pages of the Bible. Sometimes this reverence for our God causes us to turn away from sin. Uh, The image that comes to my mind, though, again, is not the image of cowering before a God who's waiting to punish us. The image that comes to my mind is that of parents and children. If I were to ask you the question, do you think that children should be afraid of their parents, what would you say? I mean, I'd be curious if I could ask you to raise your hands. How many of you think it's okay that, that parents are such that the children are afraid of them or, or that it, it'd be a good thing if children cowered before parents? I think all of us would agree that that that's, sounds abusive, that that's just not a good situation. And again, this is not what's meant by the fear of the Lord. At the same time, When I was growing up, I'm sure that there were times where I was thinking of doing something that wasn't good, and the thought popped into my mind, what if dad finds out? What if mom finds out? And just that knowledge was something that kept me from doing that thing. It's not because I was terrified of my parents. Uh, My dad was actually a, a gentleman, but I had a certain respect for him that informed how I lived my life, and sometimes the choices I made were determined by this reality. 
I have a love relationship with a father and a mother. And if I go and do this thing, it'll be something that will sadden their heart. It might also lead to discipline, but it'd be something that would sadden their heart and I wouldn't want to do it. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, the concept of the fear of the Lord is just an Old Testament concept. It's not. For example, in the book of Acts, in 9 and verse 31, we read, so the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers. The church was growing in peace, but it was, it said, being built up and they were walking in the fear of the Lord. And here I think the idea has to do with the fact that they were mindful of God's presence in their midst. Earlier in this story of the birth of the church, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira had sold some property and they lied about how much money they got from the property. And that that lie led to their death and it caused the whole church to kind of be afraid. In this context, in the book of Acts, God was doing all kinds of miraculous things in the church. People were mindful of who this was, this God, and they were mindful of his power. And it kind of had a sobering effect on them. Ultimately, though, I think we need to understand that the fear of the Lord is about a relationship. It's also, though, about respect. In Proverbs 1 and verse 7, again, let's look at this a little bit more closely. When Solomon said in Proverbs 1 and verse 7, uh, 7, he said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Let me talk about that word beginning first. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In what sense is it the beginning? Well, the Hebrew word that's used here in Proverbs 1, 7 is the same word that's found in Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, Solomon is saying here, this is the starting point of wisdom. Trying to be wise apart from God doesn't make sense. Again, it's the purpose for which we were created. Life makes sense when we realize we were created for a love relationship with our creator. A scholar by the name of Dr. Rayburn explains, in this verse, it's the starting point without which nothing else can follow. It may be taken as the root, fundamental, or basic element upon which all wisdom is built. To recognize the authority of the Lord is the ABC of wisdom. Or another way to put it, and again, this is my takeaway, when God is in his proper place, everything else falls into place. When God is in his proper place in our lives, everything else falls into place. Now, exactly what is the fear of the Lord? Well, let me give you a couple definitions. I want you to note, though, the two aspects of the definitions. One is, is there's a sense that the fear of the Lord has to do with revering God or having a, a proper reverence for our Creator. And the other aspect of it is a love relationship. And these are usually captured in the definitions, whatever they are about the fear of the Lord. It includes both of these ideas, relationship plus a certain amount of reverence. Dr. Rayburn notes no English word conveys every aspect of the word fear in this phrase, okay? He's making the point that there's not an English equivalent to the Hebrew word, fear of the Lord. There's no English word that we could use that would capture the idea. So you have to lump in a bunch of ideas. No English word conveys every aspect of the word fear in this phrase. The meaning includes worshipful submission, reverential awe, and obedient respect 
to the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Now that phrase, covenant-keeping God, is essential here because that's referring to the fact that in the Old Testament and with us, God said to his people, you will be my people, I will be your God. He was about a love relationship with a people. And so it includes this covenant-keeping God relationship we have, plus these other ideas of, of, of submitting to God, revering him, worship, obedience. He goes on to say throughout, the fear of the Lord means to respect and believe the Lord or to trust him, which I think is the thing that God wants more than anything else is that we learn to trust him because we know that he loves us. Let me give you another definition from a scholar by the name of Bazell. He writes, the fear of the Lord is to recognize God's character. In other words, all that it means to be God, recognize God's character, and then we respond by revering, trusting, worshiping, obeying, and then serving him. Or putting it again in simpler terms, I think the fear of the Lord is when God is in his proper place, everything is in his place. When we recognize who God is, then it causes us to fall in love with him. It causes us to want to worship him as, as we adore him. It causes us to trust him, obey him, serve him. It means having, again, God in his proper place. It's allowing the existence of God to impact how we live our lives day by day. That's another way to put it. I'm convinced that most people in our society today, and maybe even most Christians, live what I would call godless lives. Now, don't get me wrong about this. When I say godless, I don't mean evil. What I mean is less God, or, or they're living lives as if there were no God, or they're living what I'd call a practical atheism. They may believe in God, but they live as if he didn't exist. They go, go through their entire lives or their entire day without any thought of God. Several years ago, my wife and I went to London to visit our daughter. She was studying at the University of Hertfordshire, which is located north of London. She was gonna be there for a semester and we took the, that as an excuse to go visit London and visit her at the same time and then shoot up to Scotland as well. One day my wife and I were walking in the city of London and I realized I was bothered by something but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. As we walked around for about an hour, I, I just was wondering this, what is disturbing me? What is bothering me? And suddenly it came to me. I realized the thing that bothered me was how godless the city was. Again, I don't mean evil. I mean that it seemed like a city where, where God was not part of it. Oh, I understand that in London there are in certain places cathedrals and beautiful churches. My wife and I visited some of those churches, but when you're in the main part of the city, we'd walk for blocks and blocks and blocks and I'd see no evidence of anything related to God. No religious symbols, icons. I didn't even see churches. Wherever we were, there were no churches. And it saddened my heart. It kind of weighed me down to realize that these are people that in a sense had erased God from their collective consciousness. That's what it felt like. They'd erased God from their collective consciousness. I've experienced this in other, other cities. I've had the same feeling when I've been in New York City as well. And the same feeling like, where is God in the midst of this? God, where are you? And realizing that most people are not living as if there were a God that cares about them, a God who loves them. 
And sometimes Christians, I think, can do the same thing. We go through our lives, our days, without acknowledging God, that God is, and, and we're not in touch with him. Most of us, I think, realize uh, that the greatest command in all the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Uh, in both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and it's repeated several times, this is the greatest command. Love God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Have you ever wondered why that's the greatest command? Do you think it's because God has some kind of a love deficit, like, like God's got this container that needs to be filled up with your love and mine so that he'll feel good about himself? I'm convinced the answer is absolutely not. God can get by without your love or without mine. He does not need us to love him. So what is the command about? It is about us. That our lives are elevated when we have God in his proper place. There's something about being connected with our creator, being one with the one who made us that makes everything else make sense. It makes life worthwhile. And you know what I mean by this. When you think about worship, for example, how much joy that comes from worship, you say, well, why is it? You know, I'm making God the object of my worship, but why does it bring me so much joy? And it's because life was meant to be lived with our God, with our creator. And when God is in his proper place, everything else falls into place. There are a couple verses in Proverbs that I think summarizes exactly what I think the fear of the Lord is, or at least seems to capture from my perspective all the ideas wrapped up in the fear of the Lord. It's Proverbs 3 and 5 and, five and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Think about him in all your ways and he will guide you on the right paths. I just love this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Learn to trust God moment by moment and day by day. Don't rely on your understanding because if you want wisdom, it comes from God. And then it says, think about him in all your ways. As you're going through your life, as you're going through your days, think about how God wants to be a part of everything that you're going through. And then it says, he will guide you on the right paths. And as we go through life, he wants to lead us. We were created to know God. We were created to walk and step with him. We were created to listen to him. We were created to love him and to trust him. And only then, I think, does life make sense. So what are some practical steps that we could do to apply what I'm talking about here today? Let me mention four things. Number one, I emphasize this time and time again, spend time getting to know God. A lot of people these days talk about mindfulness, like we need to practice mindfulness. And what they mean by that is that we need to be aware moment by moment and day by day what's going on around us. You know, we need to be able to hear the birds singing and, and, and just be fully in the moment, just being fully mindful. But I think there's a certain mindfulness that we need to have about God that moment by moment and day by day, just being mindful that he is. And part of the way that we get that is when we spend time in the Bible, reading our Bible and praying. Main reason, by the way, that I like to read my Bible every day and I, I miss a day here or there, but the main reason I love it is that I learn what my God is like. It serves to connect me more with my creator, which is what life is all about. Spend time getting to know God. Number two, include God in every aspect of your life. 
Oftentimes, I'll pray through my day. I'll think through every aspect of my day, all the things that are going to be happening. And I say, God, I want to include you in this. I need you in this situation. I, I want to trust you when I have this meeting, when I'm going to be going to this place, and all the time, including God. He wants to be part of everything, even the, the fun things that we do to include God, to enjoy our God, even when we're out on the lake or whatever we're doing. Include God in everything. Third is to consider what God may want when you're making decisions. In other words, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll, he'll lead your paths. When you're making decisions to ask God, what would you want me to do? To begin to listen more and more to God because that's what I think God wants to do. He wants to lead us along the way as we go through our day. And then finally, I think it involves avoiding those things that we know don't please God. In Proverbs 8 and verse 13, Solomon wrote, to fear the Lord is to hate evil, to hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. To fear the Lord is to hate these things, and this is kind of part of the other side of the coin. And we say, you know, if I am walking in step with my God, with my creator, and I know that there are certain things in my life that just don't line up with what he wants, I say yes to God and no to that thing. The last thing I want to mention this morning, as I do most weeks, is that some of you maybe don't know where you stand with God, and, and maybe you don't know if you even have a relationship with God. The starting point for you to, is to put your trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. This is the why, why Jesus came into this world. Jesus was born into this world to live a sinless life so that he could offer himself in your place and for your sin. He became the sinless sacrifice, or as John the prophet put it, he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was willing to take upon himself the punishment for everything you did wrong so that God could declare you forgiven, God could declare you not guilty, so that one day you could spend an eternity with him. And so Jesus died. He was executed at the hand of his own father, in a sense, and he was buried. But three days later, he rose again from the dead. The payment that he had, been, he had made on our behalf was accepted by his Father. And we have a tremendous promise in John 3. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever puts their trust in Jesus Christ. You see, when you do that, when you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you begin a relationship with God. And that relationship with God extends throughout eternity. And so have you put your trust in Jesus for most people, it's just a simple prayer acknowledging your need for a savior, recognizing that you can't save yourself. You can't fix your sinfulness. I can't fix the things I've done wrong to be holy enough anyway to satisfy the holiness of God. But I put my trust in Jesus. And at some point, mo most people through a prayer, they just say, God, I know I've sinned. I need a savior. I wanna receive your son to be my savior. If you'd like to know more about that, please just contact us. We'll send you some booklets that explain a little bit more about how to begin a relationship with God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we acknowledge here today that we were created in your image. We are created to have a relationship with you and that life really doesn't make sense apart from that. But I pray you do a work in our heart to draw us close to yourself. Give us a desire, O oh Lord, to know you more, to know you more deeply, to fall more in love with you as we understand what you're like, to learn what it means more and more to walk in the fear of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.